0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your holy word and we search it out, God, would you open our hearts and our minds and search us out this morning? Your word is sharp and discerning, and so we ask that you would shape us and prune us with your word today. Help us to feel the weight of hope of the glory of Jesus. And do not allow us to sit here and be cavalier as we are exposed to your holy word, as we, are, as we come to this heavenly mountain to worship. You brought each and every one of us here in this room together today on purpose for such a time as this, for this word today, God. And so I pray that you would have your way. I pray that you would guide my words this morning, by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Colossians 2, 6 through 10. I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 1 to give us a bigger, a bigger context. So follow along with me. For I want, to, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is in which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge i say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments for though i am absent in body yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, and according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of the Deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is the word of the Lord. So at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul lays out the purpose of our text today from from verses 6 through 10. And he says that he is struggling greatly for them, that their hearts may be encouraged. Um, That's verse 2, being knit together in love. Being knit together in love. Paul is aiming for them to reach um, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, that's verse 3. Put another way, Paul is encouraging them to reach the riches of a full assurance of um, understanding and knowledge of Christ all the way down into their bones, down internally, all the way down. That they would remain knit together in love with one another and with Christ. Or as Paul puts later in verse 19, holding fast to the head. We see that he wants this for believers so that no one may delude or beguile or deceive us. That's verse 4. And that word, by the way, delude or beguile, is the same word that James uses later um, in, in his book when he says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James says, Don't deceive yourselves. And Paul is also warning that we would not let anyone else deceive us. This encouragement in Colossians is for us to reach the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ at a heart level, not at an intellectual level, at a heart level. Um, Being firm in our faith in Christ. And so, as you received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, So walk in Him, verse 6. In Him we are rooted and built up, verse 7, and established in the faith as we have been taught, verse 7. That's the doctrine that is given to us in the Scriptures, the doctrine that comes to us from the apostles, from the prophets, from Christ, the Scriptures. And so we are to walk in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving, verse 7. That abounding with thanksgiving is... Um, predicated on our having received Christ Jesus, the Lord. You've received Christ, therefore, abound in thanksgiving. Abound with thanksgiving. Paul then charges in verse 8 that you see to it that no one takes you captive or plunders you with philosophy and empty deceit. And the argument is, you have love, verse 2, don't fall for the deceit, verse 8. You have full assurance, verse 2, don't fall for the incoherent philosophy based on human traditions. You have Christ, don't stoop for anything less. Christ is fully God and fully man, fully man with everything that entails, including a body. We can look at John chapter 1. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us god put on a body in jesus christ the word became flesh god the father is eternal and invisible first timothy 1:17 and yet in christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily verse 9 paul has already said this in colossians 1:19 which says for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell, and if that weren't amazing enough, Paul says all of that in order to thrust the point through, which is you have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse ten. So, with that laid out, let's dig in to it. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open with me in Colossians two six. So it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Whether Paul means because you have received Christ, so walk in him, or whether he means in the manner that you have received Christ, so walk in him, or if he means to be ambiguous and imply both of those things, um, may, maybe it's that. Um Either way, whichever way he means it, whichever way it's meant to be taken, the point um, is that we have received Christ. We know that we've received him by faith. And so Paul says, walk in Christ. Walk in the Christ whom you have received. We could say, walk in the Christ whom you have received by faith. Walk in him. So I would say that to understand this command to walk in Christ, to understand this, we need to make sure we understand faith rightly. And if you were in Sunday school this morning, you, you got the primer here right at the front. Um, and you'll, you, this will not be new. You already heard this said today. So let's go back to the question that, um, that at least is hinted at in verse 6, which is, how do we receive Christ? We said, kids, how do we receive Christ? Because we work really, really, really hard and earn Christ. And God says, okay, now that you've worked really hard, I'll I'll give you Jesus. No, we received Christ how? As a gift. We received Christ how? By faith. As you have received Christ, by faith. Romans 3.23 through the beginning of verse 25 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. Christ is to be received by faith. Our salvation is to be received by faith. Because we know that we have and we must receive Christ by faith, The command is for us to walk in Christ Jesus, the Lord, by faith. And this is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith. We walk by faith. Your faith is in Christ. We all know that. We all talk about that. But it's really important that we understand what we mean by that. Our faith is in Christ. It's placed in Christ, but it's not just placed into Christ. Our faith comes from Christ. Our faith, our faith is found in Christ. Our faith is sourced in Christ. It is found in Him like a wellspring of water. Our faith is in Christ. Our faith, really is our faith, our faith is from Christ. Christ to us. We are established in that faith. And then as we believe, which believe is just the verb form of faith. Believe is just the verb form of faith. As we faith, as we believe um, in Jesus and on Jesus, we are being woven into him by his faith. If you picture that kind of a weaving process, this faith is coming from Christ to us, and then it comes from us to Christ. Faith is a gift from God. Faith is a gift, um, and is not of ourselves. Faith is the um, fruit of the Spirit. We, when we say the fruit of the Spirit, a lot of times when we, when we're kind of. Um, Reciting that list, we say faithfulness, being full of faith. It's the same word. It's faith. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit that dwells in us. Its source is God, not us. It's not, God doesn't give it to us as a gift, and it's something else, something other. It is from God. It is in Christ. And that's really, really important. Um. This faith comes from Jesus to us and from us to Jesus. And that faith is the substance and the evidence. That's what Hebrews 11.1 says. It's the substance and the evidence that is effectively knitting us into Christ and into one another. It is that faith. We are knit together into Christ as we are made one body. We are knit together in Christ into one another, and we are made one body. That, that is that faith. Titus 3, 4-6 through 6 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our savior. Our faith is not produced by us. Your faith is not produced by you. It is a gift of God. It is the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5:22. God is the author of faith. He is the perfecter of faith. Hebrews 12:2. And so we walk by faith. We walk in Christ. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Paul uses these vivid words to picture for us the firmness of our faith in Christ that he mentions in in verse 5 of of Colossians 2. We are rooted in him. One of the things that this pictures for us is the stability and the security from the assailing forces of the world. Like I said with the kids, a tree that, you know, if you cut the roots off of a tree... It's going to fall right over. There's no security there. Or if you have a tree that is not healthy and the roots are not deep, they don't go deep. um, A strong wind will come come along and the bigger that tree gets, the more vulnerable it gets because it's not rooted. And it just will fall over if it's not healthy. So this idea of being rooted pictures for us this stability and this security from the assailing forces of the world. Being rooted is to be stable. Being rooted is to be secure. We don't worry about healthy trees falling over as they get bigger. We worry about dying trees falling over as they get bigger. We worry about sick trees falling over. But we don't worry about healthy trees falling over. You plant a tree, you're watering it, it's all healthy. You don't worry as this thing gets bigger, my goodness, I'm going to have to do something so it doesn't fall over when it gets really big like I want it to, like it's meant to do. It's secure because it's rooted. Um, we can think of a person or a family being rooted. A person or a family is rooted, and we can think of it not just in worldly terms as, wealth or status or size, but rooted spiritually, a rooted person spiritually or a rooted household spiritually um, is also a picture of stability and security. That, that household or that individual can um, be assailed by hell, but there is a stability and a security there because they are rooted in Christ. They are rooted We're not only stable and secure because we're rooted. Being rooted also implies that we are growing. We are being supplied life. We are maturing. We have the opportunity to be fruitful, flourishing. A person or a household rooted in Christ, um, regardless of material possessions, helps others. A person who is rooted in Christ helps others others. They are stable, they are secure, and they are eager to share with people around them. And some of the most amazing examples of that are people that actually do not have anything but Christ, right? The people we see and you're blown away by and you think, you have nothing, and yet you are giving of yourself so freely. Why? Because they are rooted in Christ. So, um, to understand that idea of being rooted, we uh, when we look at nature, what we see is an ecosystem. When we think of rooted in nature, we think of trees and plants and gardens. And when we look at nature, we see an ecosystem, a community where each um, part is interacting with and supplying and benefiting other parts. And so we see interdependence, not independence. The idea of being rooted implies for us this ecosystem of interdependence. We're dependent on God, on Christ. But in as we are rooted in Christ, that means we are automatically dependent on one another. You are dependent on one another. Um, don't take this the wrong way, but you should come to church because you need to. You should come to church because you need to get something out of it and we can talk about it both ways you should come to church not just because you need to and because you want to get something out of it but because the people next to you they need something from you too because there's an ecosystem here there's a community here and that community that rootedness in christ implies mutually beneficial relationships with each other every joint supplying what the other needs God does this for us in Christ, but in Christ now it rooted in Christ, He does that for us, in one another, with one another. It's amazing to think about. And so um, when we think of being rooted, we have to consider how it is an undeniable benefit and a blessing to us, but also how being rooted is a benefit and blessing to everyone around us, not just the people who go to church with you, but your coworkers who are not Christians person who does everything for their own benefit is shorting themselves of the blessing of loving others sacrificially. At the same time, a person who seeks to avoid all personal benefit, which is completely artificial. If you, if you try and be noble and seek to avoid all personal benefit to yourself, because it's a, an idea in your mind of being noble I have to do this out of duty, sheer duty, no benefit to myself at all. You're artificially cutting off the blessing of what it means to be rooted in Christ. So we don't want to do that. Um, We want to understand, we want to be grateful for the personal benefit, the blessing to us personally and individually in Christ and being rooted with one another. But we also want to understand and see that our rootedness is a blessing to everybody else not just about you. So this is what it means to be in fellowship with God and with one another. Are you walking in Christ? If so, if you are walking in Christ, it is going to make you personally better off. It doesn't mean you're going to get richer. It doesn't mean you're going to live as long as you possibly could live, that you'll never be sick. But you, I promise you, in Christ, you will be better off. And in Christ, everyone around you will be better off for you being in Christ, even if they're not Christians. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give us the picture, though, of being rooted. It also says in, the, in this text that we are being built up in Him. A house without a good foundation is easily destroyed and quickly deteriorates in the storm. I watched a video of a house right built right on the beach, um, just come right off of its foundation. And it was just this house flopped right off of its foundation, right down into the water. And it was just, you know, the waves were just literally assailing this house. It was literally as if you just had somebody take walls and a roof and build a whole house just with no, no foundation, right on the beach, right on the sand, right in the, in the waves. And it, it wasn't sh- um, shocking or surprising at how quick that house fell apart. And literally, J- Jesus gives us that exact picture, a house built on sand, no foundation. Um, the house just deteriorated, In minutes. We are being built up on a solid foundation, and that foundation is Christ. We are established in the faith. Back in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by the death, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And he goes on to solemnly warn them in verse 23. And he says this, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This This deteriorating, withering, not continuing in the faith is what Paul is warning against when he charges us in verse 6 to walk in Him. Walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him. But that's not all. Not only are we rooted and built up, we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. So the vivid pictures here, we should not just see rooted and built up. The vivid picture includes abounding. We are abounding in thanksgiving or abounding with thanksgiving. Why? Why? And the reason why is because we have a reason that compels us to abound with thanksgiving. We have a reason that compels us to abound with thanksgiving and that reason is Christ. And so we want to be careful you know, in our quest to be grateful people, in our quest to be um, thankful people, we, we should, and it's not wrong to do this. I don't want to discourage you from doing this. We should do this. We should be, have eyes wide open to the world around us, and we should see all of the things that we can be thankful for. When we, When we say our prayers at night with little kids, you know, we can thank God that they have a bed to sleep in, right? We should teach our kids to be thankful for all of those things, but at the same time, We have got to be careful not to think of thanksgiving as an exercise in weighing the blessings of pleasant circumstances against the unpleasant. Being thankful or abounding in thanksgiving isn't just weighing the pleasant blessings against the unpleasant circumstances. And as long as those pleasant blessings outweigh, as long as I can think of a pleasant thing that outweighs the unpleasant thing, then I I can be thankful. We don't want to do that. We don't want to make it an exercise in in comparison or weighing. Um, God's blessings to us are sometimes bitter. They're sometimes not sweet. God, you you can use this analogy of making a cake. If you try and make a cake with only sweet ingredients, you're going to have a pretty rotten cake. But if you, if you make that cake, and before that cake is all finished, and you try just each and every one of those individual indig- ind- ingredients by themselves, you may taste that and say, eh, that, that's not the best tasting. Kids think, oh, let me, let me di- dip my hand in the flour bowl. Okay, go for it. It's not going to be the best tasting. But there's a purpose behind it. God is doing something purposeful. He's making something, in the end, glorious. And so um, the reason that compels us to abound with thanksgiving is Christ Jesus in you, the hope of glory. That's the reason that compels us. The the reason must not just be pleasant blessings. (coughs) 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That doesn't mean that only the bad stuff, only the afflictions are producing for us a weight of glory, that means even the bad stuff is producing for us glory. One way or another, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be morbid here or, um, you know, depressing, but I, I want us to realize this and grasp this. <laughs> One way or, or another, we will all lose everything on this side of eternity. We will all pass from this life to the next as naked and as poor as we came. We will all no matter how much material wealth you store up, no matter how many friends you surround yourself with, no matter how big your family grows, we will all pass from this life to the next naked and poor. Unless the Lord does not tarry for at least another generation or two, every single one of us in this room will pass from this life to the next. Look around for a minute and think about this. Let it sink in for a moment. Unless the Lord um, does not tarry for another generation or two, each and every one of us here will pass from this life to the next. And one of us will be the last. The missionary martyr Jim Elliott famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We cannot keep this life. We cannot, you cannot keep your stuff. We cannot keep our health. We cannot keep our vitality. We cannot keep our youthful zeal. We cannot keep these bodies. We cannot perfectly preserve our pleasant circumstances. Your life may be great, beautiful, pleasant. You may be in the wonder years of your life. And there is no possible way for us to freeze that in time and just keep it perfectly preserved. Jesus tells us in this world we will have tribulation and death and tragedy and loss touches each and every one of us. Now some of us may go unscathed for a long time by that tragedy. But it will come to every single one of us. Loss and death and tragedy will touch us all, but in Christ, we cannot lose. In Christ, we cannot lose. Our hope of glory already died to conquer death, and we win. We win. That's great news. As you you travel through the valley of shadow of death, you remember that Jesus Christ conquered death. And you and Brian cannot lose, right? We remember this in those times, in that darkness, in that moment. We, we have to remember that Christ conquers death and we cannot lose. We may lose everything else. We may lose every pleasant blessing that God is mercifully kind to us with. But we cannot ultimately lose Hallelujah. You will have still gained because of Christ, even if you do lose all of those pleasant blessings. In Christ, we cannot lose all of your family and friends in Christ who go on before you, who have gone on before you. They will have still gained because of Christ. You will have still gained. Even having lost, you will have still gained because of Christ. One day you will not only gain Christ, but in Christ you will gain them. Again, better. Better. And so we abound in thanksgiving, not because we have more pleasant gifts than bitter ones. We should recognize all of our pleasant blessings. But we abound in thanksgiving, not because we have more pleasant gifts than bitter ones. We abound in thanksgiving... Because we have Christ. And we are thankful to God for all of those good things that He gives us in His infinite wisdom and in in His loving kindness. But we are also thankful to God. We also must abound in thanksgiving to all of those things He gives us that are not pleasant. Those things that make no sense to us. Those things that seem senseless. Those things that, that feel like they're doing nothing but sucking the life out of us. Not giving us life. God is wise and he has a purpose. He's putting in the flour and the baking soda and we don't maybe understand why exactly so much baking soda. Why so much salt in these cookies, God? But he has a plan and a purpose. And those things that don't feel good, those things that feel senseless, the things that feel like they're sucking the life out of us, those afflictions... Those afflictions that magnify the the mortality and the corruptibility of this life are actually working something worthy. Those things that magnify the mortality and the corruptibility of our life are actually working something in you, for you, for God's people that, that is worthy of thanksgiving. No circumstance can overwhelm the compelling reason we have. And that means that at Christ Fellowship Church, that means in our homes, individually, we need to do a better job at seeing and believing and reckoning according to that hope-filled, glorious reality that compels us to abound with thanksgiving. This idea of, um, you know, getting frustrated and spouting off and losing our temper We've got to mortify that and recognize the reasons we have to abound with thanksgiving. Abounding with thanksgiving isn't just saying, I'm going to purpose, purpose, purpose to be thankful, thankful, thankful. It's, It's when we are squeezed, this is what comes out. And it isn't that we despise all of the temporal things. On the contrary, we hold all of those things joyfully in their proper place, which is... Infinitely below Christ. Infinitely below Christ. And we recognize that in Christ, all of the gifts God gives us here on this side, the pleasant blessings as well as the afflictions, are all working for us an eternal weight of glory. Praise be to God. Verse 8. See to it. So, and so. See to it. Beware. Beware that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So philosophy here is not referring to the, just the generic idea of rational inquiry, um, but based on the context of the letter in which Christ is set against other spiritual beings or against demonic teachings or false teachings, this is most likely referring to strands of Jewish philosophy and false teaching. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Peter Lighthart, um, a teacher, has some helpful and interesting observations for those of us who cannot read the original Greek on our own. And here's what he says. He observes that Paul uses the verb sylagogeo, which is spoil or take you captive. He uses this verb, silagogeo, which this idea of spoil or captive is, is you being the plunder. You are the spoil. You are somebody else's plunder. They capture you, and you are the spoil. You are the plunder. And so the, this verb, silagogeo, which resonates with the verb, sinago, or the noun, sinagoge which hints at the identity of the spoilers, of the plunderers. Paul is hinting with this verb at the identity of who these plunderers are. Synagogueo with synagogue. This is, um, he has in mind the Jewish synagogues. And he's warning these Colossians. These Jewish philosophies primarily. And now, of course, this warning would apply then generally to all other heresies and all other general philosophies, but probably this is what Paul is telling um, these Colossians with these puns or these plays on words. But it it would appear that he's not finished with the puns. In this section of Scripture, Peter Lightheart continues to point out that there seems to be another double pun in uh, verse 2 that ties to verse 8. Paul is contrasting in verse 8 philosophy and empty deceit from verse 8 with love and full assurance in verse 2 it would appear. The words for philosophy and empty deceit are philosophia and apate. And the the words translated as full assurance and love in verse 2 are plerosophia and agape. So it would seem that Paul is using these puns to show, um, to contrast what the Colossians already have. Don't, don't look for the philosophia and apathe. Beware of the philosophia and apathe, the philosophy and the empty deceit, because you already have the plerosophia and agape, the full assurance and the love. Christian, you have Christ, don't stoop for anything else, don't settle for anything else. You have full assurance, don't give in to these philosophies. You have love, don't look for empty deceit. Beware of empty deceit, beware of the philosophies. The warning in Colossians is, is that we do not become the plunder, that we don't become the spoil or the captives of these empty deceivers and their philosophy. And, and we hear the same kind of empty deceit and philosophy. Oh, if, if God exists, why is bad stuff happen in the world? And the question we could ask and should ask to that, if no God exists, what does it matter? Why are you worried about it, right? How do we guard ourselves against this kind of philosophy Paul has in mind? First, we believe in order to understand we believe in order to understand. Remember, what believe is? Believe is the verb form of faith. Faith is the reason we can understand. By faith. This isn't. Um, this isn't just connecting all of the right pieces just right in order to understand. This isn't a certain IQ level in order to understand. This is believe in order to understand. So consider what Paul says in verse 6. As you received Christ, so walk in Him. This is faith. You received Christ by faith. Christ came to you as a gift. Walk in that gift. Walk in Christ. Walk in faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us that Christ... Is our wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. You want wisdom, you want knowledge, you want understanding, then you better believe. Then you better believe. If you don't begin with the Most High God, that is the Triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you have nothing transcendent, you have nothing lasting, you have no hope, you have no love, you have no way to account for beauty. You have no way to account for truth or goodness or reason or logic or your own existence. Apart from God, what do we have? Nothing. Apart from God, we we have nothing cohesive. We're left with absurdity. There's no reasonable worldview apart from the Most High. And ultimately, people rejecting God are left with that absurdity and that uncertainty of the man centered philosophy and empty deceit that Paul is warning these Colossians of. Verses 9 and 10 For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In verse 9, the word translated fullness comes from the same root as the word translated filled if you're reading the ESV or complete if you're reading a New King James Version in verse 10. The the word fullness in 9 is the same root as the word filled or complete in verse 10. Now, that's incredible. That is incredible powerful teaching. That is incredible, powerful doctrine of what the scripture is telling us. This, This has got to saturate down beyond our thick skulls. In Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and we have been filled in him. Can you do the math on that? No, I don't think so. But that is incredible. If we look closely at Colossians 2.10, we're going to see something very interesting, though, and we're going to see that um, we have been filled in Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians 4.7, Paul uses this metaphor, and he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And if we stop reading right there, and we take that analogy and we try and fully understand our relationship with God, it would be very difficult for us to grasp the reality laid out for us in Colossians 2, 9, and 10. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 actually goes on to say, uh, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are filled with treasure that is to show God's surpassing power, but... If we look closely at our text in Colossians 2.10, and we're going to see that we have been filled in Christ. We haven't just been filled with Christ. We have been filled in Christ. There is so much more there than the the idea of simply being filled. It opens up, up to us a much greater and a more expansive understanding of our relationship to the triune God, to the creator God, the God who created you. So let me give you some examples that really um, help me to think about the distinction of being filled and being filled in him. And and afterwards, if you can think of some more examples that are helpful to you, I'd love to hear them after, um, after the service today. If I'm holding an object in my hand, the only way for me to know for sure that I have all of it is, is if I know all of it completely. If somebody gives me a bag with a bunch of puzzle pieces, say, I got this for you at Goodwill. It's a really nice brand, and I think you might like it. Can I know that I, that, that entire puzzle is there? No. I have to know all of the pieces. So in order for me to know something completely, I have in this idea, I have to know, know all of the components, all of the parts I have to know it in its entirety. So all of the parts that I'm holding, but also I would have to know all of the things that I am missing, all the things that I don't have. This is why it's um, a logical fallacy for somebody to claim that God does not exist. It's a logical fallacy because nobody can possibly know if God exists or doesn't. They would have to know everything, and they can't. Nobody can. And so it's a logical fallacy for somebody to claim God does not exist. Now, a lot of people don't claim that God doesn't exist. They just say, I don't believe in that God, or I don't believe in um, the God as you describe Him. So we, we, when we as finite creatures try and understand the infinite creator God in those terms... We will always experience frustration or we'll just check out intellectually at some point or another because our, in our finitude, we cannot grasp the infinite. We cannot ever exhaust God. And so we will either get frustrated or we'll just check out and say, well, I, you know, you have the people who say, well, I can't understand any of that stuff, so I just believe. I just believe, right? We don't want to do either of those things. We don't want to get frustrated and we don't want to check our brains um, out and just say, well, I'm going to substitute um, reason with this caricature of faith. Um, but remember, Paul, Paul's jars of clay analogy is to show us God's surpassing power. His surpassing power surpasses those jars of clay, right? So we can only take that metaphor as far as it's meant to go. Um, but to understand the surpassing power or that we are filled in Christ, um, we're going to consider another example. Now, think of an empty jar sitting on a beach, and you scoop a bucket of ocean water um, from the Pacific, and you fill that jar full to the brim. That jar is sitting on the beach, and you scoop a bucket of the Pacific Ocean, and you fill that jar to the brim. Full to the brim. I mean, all the way, you got surface tension holding it, beating over the side a little, it's so cool, and you're full to the brim. Couldn't get a drop more in there. Does that contain the fullness of the ocean? No. Not even close. Does that jar filled to the brim with ocean water, does that capture the great expanse of the Pacific Ocean, not even close. But now we take that empty jar off the beach, and we take it out to the middle of the ocean, and we gently set it onto those mighty rolling waves, and we watch as it totters for a minute, and then what? It's slowly consumed by the ocean. The jar is again completely full, full to the brim. But now that jar has it all because that jar is had by the ocean. The jar is still completely full, but it's different, isn't it? Now the jar is had by the ocean. As finite creatures, we, we will never be able to fully grasp the infinite God. We will never be able to exhaust God's infinite. In other words, one way we can think of this is we will never get bored with God in heaven. You know, kids sometimes think, well, I don't want to go to heaven. It's going to be really boring. We will never get bored because we as finite creatures can never exhaust the infinite God. This is why the angels around the throne constantly cry holy, holy, holy and they don't ever get bored and they don't ever say well we've said it once, we've said it a million times because there is no exhausting the infinite God. And so as finite creatures we'll never fully grasp the infinite but now we know the infinite God not in terms of what I have and what I don't have but now we know in terms of being had. We know in terms of being had by the infinite God. This is what Paul says actually in Galatians. He says, but now you have come to know God or rather be known by God. Do we know God? Yes. Do we know him completely? No. Does God know us? Yes. We have been known by the infinite God. And that makes all the difference. The infinite God who is a consuming fire, who is a jealous God, who has us, who possesses you. God has revealed himself to us, his creatures, such that we can know him, and we know him in Jesus, in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you know what else? You. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you know what else dwells in Jesus? You, Christian. Does that rattle your brain a little bit? How can this be? We know Him because we have been known by Him. We are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and Power. This is undoubtedly referring to spiritual beings, gods, angels, Satan, devils, demons, the host of heaven. We sing about some of those hosts today, cherubim and seraphim, archangels, watchers. We can go down the list of things that are mentioned in the Bible and think of all these interesting beings. And the Bible tells us that Christ is above all of them. He is Lord of all of them. It's no more, it's referring to spiritual beings, but it is no more or less true of human authority, human powers and principalities. Earthly powers, Christ is Lord of all. And that gives me great hope and great comfort because it reminds me that Not only do I not need to be afraid of spiritual beings, the devil, demons. I don't need to be afraid of the United States Supreme Court and their asinine decisions. Or the executive branch, our president or his handlers. I don't have to be afraid of the World Health Organization or the CDC, or the World Economic Forum and their global elite. I don't have to be afraid of any of those little bitty lords, wannabes, because Christ is Lord of all. We don't have to be afraid of China, or Russia, or wars, or powers. We don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything, because Christ is is Lord of all. He is Lord of the stock market. He is Lord of our economy. He is Lord of our fiat currency. He is Lord of all. And we don't have to be afraid or anxious. That's good news, isn't it? You, you will not ever be Lord of all either. And that's also good news. You want to be Lord of all, don't you? You're driving down the road and you want to be Lord of all the traffic. (laughs) Everybody out of the way. (laughs) You want to be Lord of of, uh, all the stuff sometimes, but not even you are going to be Lord of all because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. No little God, no angel, no devil, no demon can ever be Lord of all because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Revelation 19.15 teaches us that Jesus rules with a rod of iron. And we are told that nothing happens apart from the will of God Most High. Not even one sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the will of God. Not even one sparrow can fall to the ground apart from the will of God. You think God doesn't see our economic situation in America? You think God doesn't see abortion and the 4,000 babies murdered every day in this country alone? Do we think God doesn't see that? He doesn't know. He knows. He sees, and he is Lord of all. Christ is the head of all principality and power. Jesus is Lord of all. You see, people, when they talk about, um, the, sometimes people get a little bit squirmy, you know, and say, say, they say, pastors shouldn't get too political. I could have just skipped mentioning all of, you know, the Joe Biden, the... World Economic Forum. We could have just skipped mentioning that, and I could have just said Jesus is Lord of all, but you realize that's the, polit- that's the political statement? Amen. I don't need to mention Joe Biden or Donald Trump to be political. Jesus is Lord of all. He is above all power and principality. That's the political statement. He governs all things. That's the policy that we're talking about here. Christ is the head of all principality and power. Jesus is Lord of all, and you have received Him. You have received Him by faith. So walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the table. At this table we come each week to this table we are invited by the lord of all each week to come to his table we can do that um with a cavalier attitude and because we do it every week that should be something that we are mindful of guarding against we don't come um in in just uh Robotically, cavalier. Oh, yep, here we go again. We are invited to this table every week by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That is amazing. This is a table that is for believers. But this is a table, this is an altar that we are invited to. Who is invited to? Sinners are invited to this altar. They're invited here to come and die. Just like you, Christians, are invited to come and die. Every week. This is our altar call. We don't tell you to shut your eyes and say, uh, with every head bowed and every eye closed, raise your hand if you need to accept Christ. We We don't do it that way. You know how we do it here? We say, come and welcome to Jesus. Trust on Christ. That's what this table is. If you're not a Christian... Um, If you do not have faith in Christ, He calls you today, right now, to believe. Do not delay. Today, do not harden your heart. Believe on Christ. Trust Christ. He says to you, Come to me. So do not be afraid. Do not be ashamed. But believe. Will you believe? Will you believe? If so, come And welcome to Jesus. Please stand and receive your charge. What must you and your house do to to walk in Christ? We're commanded at the beginning of our text to walk in Christ. What must you and your house do to walk in Christ and to abound in thanksgiving? What must you do? Behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. That's what you must do. Believe. Behold Jesus. Today, behold Jesus, who is the head of all rule and authority. Behold Jesus, your hope of glory. Not your hope of death. Not your hope of your best life here on this side. Your hope of glory eternal. Behold Jesus, your wisdom. Behold, Jesus, your firm foundation and the root of Jesse. Behold, Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Christian, behold Jesus, the Lord, whom you have received, and walk accordingly today, tomorrow, the next day, and so on and so forth. Let's sing our thanks to God with our hands and our hearts raised. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Amen.